Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to Magnified with Matt Cooper. This is a podcast designed to spend a bit more time with the guests than I might normally have on my radio show, The Last Word. Today we have Anya Kerr, an entrepreneur in the tech sector, a former teacher and a former journalist who is exceptionally strong on the whole issue of disinformation and misinformation. And that's where we started this particular podcast when I asked her to elaborate a little bit on the problems caused by fake news. And misinformation sometimes can be, we've seen it in Ukraine where somebody saw something on a social media platform, but it turned out it was actually from Syria or was from Afghanistan. Disinformation, though, is where it is knowingly being spread by someone as part of a playbook, as part of conspiracy theory, as part of propaganda to spew confusion and disorder. And you see that whether somebody decides to take, and we've seen it with Ukraine, um, images from a documentary, images from a trailer, uh, repurposing uh, images at a past uh, conflict, repurposing that for their own purposes, sometimes of propaganda, sometimes it's just their own sense of wanting to be part of a moment. So this is their way to feel empowered and belonging to, to something. Sometimes it is financial gain, but disinformation is where it's been knowingly spread to cause confusion and often can lead to real world harm, as we have seen, whether it's, you know, vaccine adoption or we see now on a war front between, you know, Russia public sentiment and Ukrainian people and how disinformation has been used in that space to try and kind of change a public appetite for war, for invasion and, and how it's sown from there. What about the responsibility of platforms? Obviously, they're now hiring Kinzen to do work on their behalf. But how seriously then do they actually take their responsibility to act upon the information that you provide to them? Because if you think back, and let's take Facebook as an example, and Frances Hogan, the whistleblower, and what she revealed, suggested almost a cynicism that, well, whatever we know is going onto the platform, uh, even if we know that it's wrong and we know that it is harmful, it is only moderated to a limited degree because the priority is getting eyeballs and getting advertising profits on the back of that. And I do think the platforms find themselves in yet another precedented moment, yet a moment where, I, you know, founders of Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whoever they are, their mission, I think, was to do good. I do believe that they wanted to make the world more connected, to ensure that people felt more informed about their communities and have that sense of connection. What they didn't allow for enough was that there are going to be a minority of people would use it and abuse it. And therefore, they're still catching up on those unintended consequences of their platforms. And so they keep having to recreate playbooks. They're creating one now for, for this wartime moment. They're having to constantly evolve. They're in this ad hoc mode. You talk to people inside platforms, they'll often say it feels like a game of whack-a-mole. They're constantly just reacting to fires burning. doesn't matter if it's the Philippines, Myanmar, uh, elections in the United States. States, this moment in Ukraine, it's constantly trying to react to a moment as opposed to proactively trying to get ahead of what is the world going to look like in 10 years time and work back from there? Like, What is the regulation? What are the standards? How are we going to hold ourselves accountable? And I think they've gotten into such a reactive mode that often there isn't enough about that bigger holistic responsibility and what the world is going to look like in 10 years time. But I do think platforms at least are trying to think about a holistic set of solutions. There is a recognition they need um, to think about their algorithms and their recommenders and how those are wired. And I do think there's a dawning realisation that, you know, this endless scrolling, this constantly setting people into platforms where it's about time spent, that you're there to consume adverts and it's about giving you the holy shit moments and the holy wow moments. And it's these Dopamine hits interspersed with cute babies and funny cats and then showing you these awful moments from Ukraine. And we're all there in this doom scroll 
constantly there looking for more information when instead there is this increasing movement around time well spent. Well, what would it be like to actually go into these platforms and rather than stay there all day constantly checking back, that you go in and read five articles today, you know, that maybe do match your interests, your hobbies, your profession, your location, and that that feels enough to feel empowered and informed about the world around you. And yes, consume advertising. Of course, we want to sustain quality, trustworthy journalism, but there is a different way of doing it. And that advertising model for platforms is now broken. So we have to look at that. But then you have to go right back to our education systems. And I ultimately accept My daughter, she is only four, is going to grow up in a world of constant now misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, harmful speech. It's only going to get worse. And I can hope that I am going to play my part to make... Uh, to ensure that the platforms, the news feeds that she consumes is full of quality, trustworthy content and that people like me are going to try to work to mitigate the bad stuff. But we have to teach people like my daughter critical thinking skills. We have to start thinking about what does news literacy look like in our in our schools. They say in the United States states that at 12, that is when you try to inoculate kids. That is when you teach them almost the skills of journalism, the who, what, where, when, how, why, that they're constantly learning to look at something and go, well, does that actually make sense, right? What does it look like for me to to debunk this, to go and find a quality source, to ask hard questions of this and be the wisdom in the crowd. And I don't think we've thought enough about that here in this country yet. There's definitely some good initiatives, but what is it going to look like to actually teach kids critical thinking skills in our primary schools to ultimately inoculate them? We're going to have to think to our earlier point, we are coming through a pandemic. We're also coming through an infodemic. We have a vaccine now to inoculate kids over what, six years of age? How are we going to inoculate them against misinformation and disinformation? Do you think, is Russia to blame for an awful lot of the things that have gone wrong over the last decade in our, on our news feeds? That it has been responsible for deliberately manipulating information that's appeared on our major platforms, like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, that we have been subject to an information war long before the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Also, I suppose you could say, after all the things Russia did in Crimea and Syria as well. They've certainly played a role. Uh, I think it'll take, even with Ukraine right now, it'll take another six to nine months for us to really understand the entirety of that information effort when you look at, so we talk about OSINT now, where you have these open source intelligence journalists, verification specialists, who have really been specialists in this area since 2014. When we think of that Malaysia aircraft going down, you have companies like Bellingcat. They have just stayed in that area since 2014, trying to understand everything from satellite imagery to the corner of buildings that in this moment they can verify you know, we, we look at Boucher today and bodies on the street and you have New York Times, you have Bellingcat. So there has been a state of readiness. Sorry, that's mm. I want to ask you about that because my first thought on seeing all that was, is this true? And maybe that's because I've become so sceptical about everything that I see on the internet that I almost need things to be actually proven to me. Now, there's been some very convincing work done by the New York Times, for example, showing satellite imagery of the fact that the bodies were there strewn on the streets as the Russian ta- uh, army left. So this idea that the Russians are trying to put out that this is propaganda, this is some sort of Ukrainian or even Western response to set up the Russians has been disproven. But you almost have to work, don't you, and rely on many people to do the work for you to actually show what is the truth and what is not the propaganda. Yeah, so we're in this perfect storm that is 10 years in creation, to your point. But we also have this state of readiness where journalists can put up their hands today and go, we have verifiable proof that what we are seeing in Busha is real. And that is because of satellite imagery that they've been able to get access to. But it's also journalists on the ground who have been there, who've been able to say that street corner matches that photograph. They can give the geolocations and say, yeah, geo-coordinates, that matches with what we're seeing here in the satellite image. So you still need journalists and photographers on the ground. Then you have eyewitnesses. You go through TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and 
and and all of these platforms. And then you can match eyewitness t- testimonial to what journalists are able to vouch for to then satellite imagery. And you start to put all of these things together and it's turning a piece of content. So it starts with a satellite imagery of are those bodies on the streets of Busha today? And you're turning that piece of content into journalism where you can with a certain level of certainty if you are the New York Times today and you are Malachi Brown, nephew of Vincent Brown, and go, yeah, we are confident we can call BS here on Russia propaganda. But it takes the blend. And I think that's a critical point in all of this. There are verification tools, there's software that we can use today, you know, reverse image searching. We can do digital footprint analysis. We need tooling for sure. We need sophisticated satellite imagery, but it comes back to good old school journalism at the end of the day when it comes back to these critical questions. Well, let's roll back a little bit and let's talk a bit about you, Anya. And you were a teacher for a while, weren't you? Yeah. (laughs) What did you teach? I was a primary school teacher of fifth class girls. So always knew really from about age 14, 15, I wanted to be a teacher and a journalist. And in my secondary school, before you even did your junior search, we didn't have transition year, you had to pick your leave insert subjects. And I wasn't a big fan of science. I loved history, economics. So I remember having this moment at about 15 before my junior search. God, have I a binary choice coming here? I have to pick my subjects that's going to lead to a career choice. And I think no harm to our parents' generation. They probably have this idea, you know, it's this stepladder effect. You start here and you go up the stepladder and you'll have your promotions and your nice pensions and you'll retire at age 65. And I think probably instinctively at 15, I knew actually, no, it's, it's going to be this mixed match. It's going to be squiggly. It's going to be about doing things that give you a sense of purpose, pursue your interests, play to your strengths. And I always remember sitting down with an A4 page and writing head, drawing a head and a heart on the other side. And head was teaching and heart was journalism. And I have a very good uncle, Frank McNally, who is a journalist. And he sat me down at age 15 and he did say to me, look, if, if this is kind of a close choice for you, do teaching. Because you're going to have this holistic degree. You're going to learn about sociology, psychology, philosophy. You're going to have life experience as a teacher. But you're also going to have a specialism. You're going to have education and that will fuel your journalism at first. If you go into journalism straight away, it might actually give you a very narrow area of mastery but you mightn't have that life experience that might give you that that way in that window that door and that gateway into your journalism and it was sound advice I'm always grateful I got it at age 15 and that's what I did you were a very mature 15 year old though to write down the lists weren't you head and heart and to look for advice from others and then to act upon it yeah and and I think I've probably been good at coming back to moments like that and asking yourself Right, what's the, the risks here? What does it look like to pursue your interests, pursue that sense of purpose? And I've come back to that continually, but probably I look back on that 15-year-old self. I often have little conversations with her going, yeah, like, well played. Now, it's not been without, it's, you know, you have to endure the lows and optimize the highs and just kind of try to find a zen. Like, you know, we I've made mistakes along the way for sure, but I, I'm always grateful I knew at 15 a sense of work to plan and plan to work. And that plan was teaching and teaching would always go to journalism. So where did you train to be a teacher? And when, then how did you get into journalism from there? <laughs> so I went to St. Pat's uh, in Drumcondor for three years. And the girls I met on the first night, I'm 17, first night out of Monaghan and uh, lived on campus the first year. And the girls I met that night... Uh, 11 other girls are still my closest friends today and uh, did three years in Pats fabulous experience Uh, I think the ratio of boys to girls so girls were 14 to 1 and not a lot of boys in Pats and I was very fortunate I got a job around the corner on Home Farm Road at Girls National School and permanent pensionable job as my mom likes to remind me Um, but I knew I would do my time there it was an incredible vocation, but every day I used to leave Drumcondra, Home Farm Road, and I would go up to the Northside People newspaper in Santry. Uh, so I'd be in there at like four o'clock, sometimes out on a job, sometimes going up to the newsroom. And so I had these multiple callings. I knew very early into teaching, I got to start putting a portfolio together. Second year of teaching, and I loved teaching and I loved fifth class girls because they're at that impactful moment of 
of change and transition and you've got such an important role in terms of sustaining their confidence. So I loved my two years, but I always knew I have another calling here and the calling was journalism. So I had two years putting my portfolio together, courtesy of the Northside and Southside People newspaper and did my master's then in DCU. So just two years as a teacher. What, yeah. type, what type of teacher do you think you were? <laughs> do you know, I still have kids every few months pop up on LinkedIn going, Miss Care, do you remember me? So the fact that they still reach out, I would like to think I, I did have an impact there. I think I was uh, certainly a patient teacher, but probably the creative type. I would have been doing, you know, the, the music and the creative writing and really trying to get them to step outside their comfort zones a little bit. I think when they're that age at 11 they do start to have those inner monologues a little bit with themselves. Definitely all the research shows confidence can take a little bit of a knock. You're preparing for secondary school, you're going through all of these hormonal changes. So I was always very confident of do things that are going to give them energy, going to give them confidence because it's a hard class as well. Like I think back fifth class and I'm an incredible teacher Mrs Daly for fifth and sixth class but I found fifth class so hard long division long multiplication your tissue going and dock you know all your various squirrely tenses I found it a really hard graft but once I got through fifth class I grew I really found my voice then in sixth class but to this day, and I talk to Mrs. Daly all the time, like I know fifth class was a really pivotal age for me in terms of seeing through, building resilience, realising what my strengths were. So I took very seriously those two years for those kids. And I'm grateful when they pop up now and again to tell me what it is that they're doing. <laughs> well, I'd be getting to, you are started as a teacher and a journalist, but you're now a businesswoman. And I will get to that in more detail a little bit later. And your role as a businesswoman. Ever regret, though, that you didn't stay with teaching? What would your life have been like, do you think, if you'd stuck with teaching? <laughs> um, I think I would be living a very fulfilling, vocation-driven, purposeful life as a teacher, too. I think it is an extraordinarily hard job. Um, because in, So I mentioned there my 11 uh, friends from St. Pat's. I then have friends from Corpus Christi and Drumcondra. So my closest friends today, 16, 17 of them, are teachers. And I can see how hard a graft it is. I think we all have a renewed appreciation of teachers after the last two years. Um, I think I'd be living in a nice house probably down the country. <laughs> not, uh, not with a big mortgage in Dublin probably and uh, pursuing multiple callings. I think my life would probably in some ways be simpler. Um, but... I think I wouldn't have been true to myself in terms of kind of answering those callings. And I think that's probably one thing I've realised since my teaching years is that some people will have one calling and they should answer that calling when it comes to their purpose and impact and what it looks like to play to their strengths and live their values. I think I've always been a person who has multiple callings, which means I have to programme my life very, very carefully. But I've no regrets. And the thing with teaching is that the longer I've gone through journalism, into Facebook, Storyful, back out to Kins and that, the thread line there is that there is one in all of that because a teacher is trying to provide knowledge, facts, information to help others feel empowered to make decisions about the world around them, right? That is the role of a teacher. Journalism isn't that dissimilar either. You know, you're trying to kind of curate facts, you're, you're pro-truth, you're, you're pro-social justice, you're pro-getting people information, holding people to account, but ultimately putting the information out into the world so that people can make an informed decision at the ballot box about a vaccine. So there's a thread line. Now today, I don't do the work of a journalist anymore, bar sometimes I get behind the other side of the microphone as a broadcaster. But I try to do things every day that are empowering journalists, researchers, fact checkers around the world, because I believe that journalism is absolutely critical to our functioning democracies. And so my role increasingly is empowering other journalists around me so there is a thread line there from the teaching. So I don't see it as this massive separation or leap off point. Probably felt it at age 21, 22 when you're stepping out of your permanent pensionable job into the unknowns of journalism. But today I see the thread line. I'm very comfortable with it. And there's a thread we'll jump to about giving up permanent pensionable jobs as well in a little while. 
what sort of journalist do you think you were in retrospect? I mean, what do you make of the work that you did? God, good question. Um, because I think, just to explain to people yeah. who are listening, you worked for a variety of newspapers, Irish Examiner, Irish Independent as a political uh, correspondent there. So you would have been across a lot of the big stories, which can be very enjoyable to do. But how well do you think you did it? <laughs> I think... One of the things I did well was when it came to stories like Stardust. Like that was something that started for me in the Northside People newspaper. And I tried to continue it through the seven years with all of those newspapers. So I think on social justice campaigns, on education, just coming back around and around again. You know where you check back in with the same sources and you're constantly just going back and seeing has this moved? Ask the questions again and that persistence. And I loved my time as a political journalist then all of those years, which was really boom to bust. Um, but I think I probably struggled while I learned the craft of journalism. I deeply respected the work of journalism. I think I found the you are only ever as good as your last story. I found that part probably hard, you know, particularly, you know, the, the, the corridors of Leinster House. It's so competitive and rightly so. That makes everybody, you know, really hit high standards. But I think I found that part of it hard that you were always felt like you were chasing. You were chasing the next big yarn, the next front page story. Is that that I part don't... of the fun of it? <laughs> yeah, I don't miss that part of it, I have to say. I do not miss I, I have, you know, I enjoyed my years of deep appreciation, respect ever more, given what I'm doing, which every day is back to how do you amplify good quality, trustworthy content, mitigate the bad. So, Everything always comes back to journalism for me still, but I probably don't miss the doorsteps, racing around onto the plinth, jumping on flights every time, you know, a Taoiseach would leave the country. And even they might be out, you know, on, on, on doing important deeds on behalf of the country, you were still asking them about whatever the latest breaking story was back in Ireland. Like there were moments like that were just hard. Well, would that suggest there are times when you felt that maybe the emphasis was incorrect, that you were been required to chase the immediate rather than actually maybe stepping back and looking at what was actually more important. And I think probably all journalists had that moment of reckoning. I certainly had it. Um, I was in New York the day the IMF arrived into Ireland and, uh, you know, Fran McNulty, there was a group of us, uh, seven journalists from the north, seven from the south. It was an exchange programme with uh, Boston College, the US State Department and the Irish government here to go over for two weeks and see what does the future of journalism look like. And we got into Marty Barron in Boston College. We were down with Jeff Jarvis, NYU. So we were meeting all of these incredible thought leaders. And it must have been on one of our last days uh, we're in a, a, a diner off Times Square and up on the ticker came the IMF has arrived in Ireland and we went out onto Times Square and everyone was like immediately onto Twitter and like Twitter was still in its infancy really at the time but at the time there was kind of an understanding for me and as a journalist don't post don't tweet things that could compromise tomorrow's newspaper and I find that hard standing there in that moment where you've just had Jeff Jarvis Jay Rose and Marty Barner saying to you we've been doing journalism in the wrong order we've been preaching to people we've been talking about public service journalism but we've been out preaching and expecting the public just to accept our journalism and we know best and what they had been saying for two weeks was, no, we got to do this in the reverse. What does it look like to go out to your communities, the people, citizens, and build the stories from the outside in? And so having had two weeks of that, of how do you actually do it a little bit differently? And then you're standing in Times Square and one of the biggest, most historic events in your lifetime is happening and you feel disempowered that you can't be part of this public conversation like I got in the flight home and I emailed Mark Little I'd seen him on the late late I'd never met Mark before so I have still no idea really what Storyful is about but I know I want to be a part of it I think we have to rethink journalism and the models underpinning it and yeah and it was a six-month conversation before I left uh, the newspaper I was with at the time to to join Storyful. So you cold called Mark Little? I did. I recently, <laughs> we did reintroductions in Kins in the last few months and Mark and I did our reintroductions to the team and I went down, I found the emails. This is like 2010, 2011. 
where I was cold emailing Mark Little and we'd six months of coffees before I made the leap, just trying to understand, right, what does it look like if I'm going to leave, you know, front page newspaper journalism, being on the Vincent Brown show once or twice a week to go into a room of just 10 people where you're trying to build the first social media news agency in the world. And it was another, it was one of those leaps, you know, just like leaving teaching for journalism. That was the next big one for me was to leave traditional journalism, to go into a scrappy startup like Storyful, the beginnings of the Arab Spring, and ask yourself the question, well, what would I do if I weren't afraid? And my answer was, right, I'll go. I'll go now and I'll be a part of something that may fail. I knew then nine in 10 startups fail, but I believed in Mark's vision at the time that there was a different way of doing public service journalism and the ability of Storyful to be an honest broker. Would it be true to say, though, that Storyful changed quite early on in Mark's original vision and then how you helped him develop, that circumstances made it actually change into something different? Yeah, like it's a little bit like Kinzen even. I, oh, I think I the founding, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But like, I think the founding mission, the founding vision of Storyful um, was always there in terms of what does it look like if you can go out and find signal in the noise and curate the most powerful images, videos, stories coming on social media platforms, verify them and and turn that content into stories. Now, the original incarnation of Storyful was to do that B2C for the public at large. But obviously what we realised very early on into Storyful was actually, well, we can be the broker between those eyewitnesses, those people uploading onto these platforms around the world. And if we can verify it and get their permissions, we can give that to the New York Times or the Guardians or the ABCs and make sure that that content, those stories are distributed in an ethical way, but that has been verified, the date, the source, the location. So it certainly evolved, but I think the, the stubbornness about the original vision and intent was always there, but there was always a flexibility on how are you going to sustain and ultimately ensure a startup thrives out of Dublin. And what was, you know, deep in the recession, you look back, you know, a world in chaos, you're, you're in the beginnings of Arab Spring and Ireland is plunging into recession with multiple bailouts. Storyful was about, was it three or four years old when it was bought by News International, News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch's company, and you stayed with it. And how difficult was that transition going from being the scrappy startup, the entrepreneurial vision, the sense of social justice to suddenly being owned by a corporation that many people would be dubious about some of its practices? Yeah, and I I will say there was order systems, processes brought to us. You know, there was definitely um, transformation in terms of bringing us to a mature footing. There were We were obviously run as a separate entity, an independent organisation. News Corporation acquired us. We kept all of our partners, our YouTubes, our Facebooks, our New York Times, Storyful remained working with all of them um, once acquisition happened, which said a lot, I think, for News Corporation, but also the, the trust and respect we had built up. So I think on the pros, definitely we got to mature as an organisation. And when you have an entity like News Corporation, though, in the background, doors do open. Like we were able to massively scale, um, acquire talent around the world, build the partnerships, build new products. Um, So for the most part, over those two years, certainly it was change and transformational, but a good experience. How difficult though as well was it when you suddenly had that new resource behind you to manage the transition of developing the scale and size of the business as the new owners wanted, but also to remember those who'd been with you up until that point? Yeah, like I think if I had a redo, um, and I say this to people all the time out on their startup journeys now, is like have a retention strategy. And this is long before this moment of the so-called great resignation where we've had two years of a pandemic and people are revisiting what they want to do in their careers. But I always regret that I was probably caught a little bit flat-footed. You know, we'd built this world-beating Irish startup that had gotten acquired. We were the gold standard for how you do verification. 
you go through an acquisition, you're suddenly trying to find your place in the world, you know, inside a, a larger corporation. And then suddenly you're CNNs and your New York Times and your Guardians and everybody is showing up going, hold on a minute here. They not only have journalists, but they have journalists with this whole other skill set when it comes to OSINT and verification and their skill set when it comes to new software and tooling. And it just felt for months and months, all I did was deal with flight risks. And there was loads of people I managed to kind of say, look, can we, can we continue to rent you for another year or two? You always felt in Storyful, we were so far ahead. I think journalists have mostly caught up today in terms of those, that tooling and skill set. But back de- then, Storyful journalists had a toolkit, others didn't. Newsrooms realised they needed it themselves. And we were able to kind of say to people, stick with us. There is still career progression here for you. You can live your values. You can have your impact. You've got autonomy. There's a real sense of purpose and what Storyful can do in the world without. And I think for the most part, we did manage to retain a lot of people. But you always knew the Maliki Browns were destined for the New York Times. The Donio Sullivans were destined for CNN. And that's a good thing. You know, I think Storyful got to a place where you could teach culture. You could set up. Uh, training programs where the Donies and the Malkies were able to hand down those skill sets and go and, and have their bigger, broader impact. And I'm very proud of the fact today that Storyful did build that team, build that toolkit. And now other newsrooms around the world have the benefit of it. We're much better off as journalists, but I would like to think as a democracy and society. But you were in that role in Storyful as a trained teacher, as a trained journalist. What sort of training did you have to be a manager? Uh, I got a, I had a very good uh, coach probably early on in Storyful. I'm probably one of those people I'm always doing a course though, you know, like right well, That's now. what I was trying to get to because I'm stunned by the amount of top level American universities yeah. you've gone to to do courses. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always rooting and tearing. People ask me, what do I do at night? Once Anna is down at half seven, I'm back into some course. So like I'm, I'm two thirds way through a master's in business at the moment, but in between I've done a lot of project management, I've done financial courses. So I've always had that mantra of I have a responsibility to people around me and if I'm going to keep them in their flow and ensure that they have autonomy, they play to their strengths. And frankly, I have to hire people smarter than me every day of the week. We'll then at least be able to ask powerful questions, you know, be able to do due diligence, be able to understand your mitigations and risks. So I've always felt duty bound to stay curious and always be learning. And that probably has come from sometimes in in our craft of journalism, seeing journalists being left flat-footed of not seeing some of the trends, not having had an opportunity to look around corners and see, wow, if I don't upskill here, if I don't become a multi-platform digital journalist. And you see that, you know, and I've seen that for journalistic colleagues of what has happened through no fault of theirs. But if you're not proactive enough and diligent enough about always be learning, always staying curious. And I've held myself accountable to that, that when I decided all of those years ago, right, if you're going to leave the permanent pensionable teaching job, well, by God, you better make sure then you're in it. You're in journalism, you're in technology, you're in business then to stay in it. And you are responsible. I go to to bed every night knowing I'm responsible for 40 people on a payroll. So there is responsibility there of, yeah, you can make mistakes and you can have failures, but you need to be sure you can rise again and fight another day. Why do you need a master's in business, given the experience that you've had over the last decade, both as an employee with Facebook, which I'll get to in a moment, and also as an entrepreneur? Surely you're living the experience. Yeah, and I've wrestled with this one. And, you know, I've gone to Columbia University and I've done courses in Harvard and Cornell. And some people would say, you're living it on you. Give yourself a break. And... I've done the courses and I have felt, yep, this has given me maybe some models or tools or frameworks that now have put into practice things I instinctively knew. But Tara Moore, this lady who wrote a book called Playing Big, she has done some research on how women do sometimes seek educational attainment in areas where they feel there is a male bias. And I am probably guilty of that. I probably have, in all honesty, felt there are not enough women in business, there are not enough C-suite leaders, there are not enough directors in companies. And women, 
you know, it's it, I hate to talk about women's confidence and our imposter syndrome because that has only come about because society, unfortunately, is designed by men for men. But when you are in that system, you are constantly looking at ways that are going to get you into the room where it happens. And I have sometimes felt I do not have the luxury that a man has of maybe getting onto a board or doing something and I will be at an advantage if I have a master's of business on my CV. And and that's a tricky thing to admit, but that is the reality of the systems being organized the way they are and women have having to work harder for their place in the rooms where things happen. And you're in a sector which may be guilty of, if not misogyny, certainly overbearing male testosterone-fueled behaviour. And I've been shocked at various tech events that I've gone to in conferences over the year as to how overwhelmingly male it is. This is this 21st century sector, which looks, in some respects, more backwards than many of the industries of the 20th sector, so how, 20th century sector. So how do you deal with that? I am lucky in that I've had great support networks. You know, I think all the time about what the social capital look like and you're going for growth out there. You've got a Waken Hub. Um, there are increasingly tribes of women out there having each other's backs. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of those tribes of women. I will say I've been very lucky, but not other women have been, to have male allies. Doesn't matter if it was Sean Flynn down in the Irish Times, John Walsh in the Indo, Tim Vaughan, Harry McGee in the Irish Examiner. I've had male allies. When there hasn't been a woman in the room, they've gone, I know someone who can do it, or you can do it. And I know men have done that for me, and I'm hugely appreciative for male allyship. There's not enough of it, but I know I've had it. And I know... We've been fortunate. I have a great business partner in Mark. We're out doing our second startup, the Difficult Second Album. And I have a great ally in Mark. And we have a yin and yang that works. Um, But it is hard. And, you know, I'm in technology and business. And too often I step into Zoom rooms or I step onto panels and I am the only woman. And you see it in the questions men will get asked about the scale of the opportunity what does the future of the world look in five years woman will get the question how might this all fail there is even a tone and type to the questions that women and men will get in business and technology that uh, and women will get the how do you do it all you know the work-life balance question and I have become increasingly confident when I get that I'll say okay well I'll answer that if all the men here on the panel are comfortable asking and answering the question of how we program our lives and do the ruthless prioritization and all of that good I, stuff. I was going to get to that expression <laughs> you beat me to it <laughs> um So yeah, it's there and I feel a real responsibility for other women around me that while I've been lucky to have those tribes, to have those male allies, to have had a Mark Little in my life, I know an awful lot of other women haven't had those opportunities, um, haven't had enough men in boardrooms going, Anya has it, Anya's got this. And we have a massive pipeline problem as a result. Explain this ruthless prioritization <laughs> expression to me, because I've seen it in various interviews that you've done, print interviews, but because it strikes me mm-hmm. that perhaps you're not ruthless enough, that maybe you take too much on. Yeah, and this is, I have to get better at the power of no and the power of elimination and trade-offs. And, you know, I do my matrix at the start of every week you know what is the stuff that is urgent what's the stuff that's important but not so urgent do you still and write it down in the yeah. pad like as a 15 year yeah. old when you're heart uh, yeah, and no, head I have a little uh, quadrant and then what is the stuff I need to delete and thankfully I have uh, an amazing uh, PA now Katie so I put loads of stuff in my delete I'm getting much better at that that's only because I delegate so much stuff to Katie now but I have to get better at that delete column so that I'm increasingly working on the urgent, important, important, but not urgent, because you can find yourself just boiling the ocean. And I was guilty of that. That was one of my first learnings when I went from Storyful into Facebook. In Storyful for five years, I was all things to all people. You were just like, keep the company running, keep everybody happy in their flow. And then you go to Facebook where you're a global head of journalism partnerships 
and they start teaching you stop boiling the ocean on you. It is enough to have three wins this quarter. And Cheryl Sandberg teaches ruthless prioritization and teaches you this constant never go into a meeting with only your plan A. You got to go into meetings with the ability and be prepared to kick the shit out of plan B. And that came about in Facebook because of Cheryl Sandberg's own life circumstances where she had been living life in her plan A with her husband and children. And as people will know, her husband died very tragically. And so in the months uh, where she was coming through her grieving, she had this right realization of, I have to go and live life in my plan B now. But it was a whole ethos and a philosophy that came to project planning and products go and kick the shit out of plan B. So I kind of have these two parts of my brain that are always, well, you can't have multiple priorities, you can only have one number one priority. And you have to kind of rank. And you change the ranking day to day. Like, you know, I will drop everything today if I get a call from Crash that, that something's wrong with Anna. Because I know, well, she immediately goes in there, no matter what the time of day, everything else will come out. And I know that. And I have to know, right, well, what are the trade-offs? What are the things that are going to move down? What does w- this week look like? If I commit on Monday morning to these three wins, am I going to be able to celebrate them by Friday evening? And what are the things that I have to navigate in between during the week to to make sure I'm going to have that sense of win and progress and that you can celebrate that. Because I think what happens a lot of us, particularly out in business and in our day-to-day lives, we're just going through the tasks. You know, it's it's back to just firefighting and we get to the end of the week and we're like, cripes, did I actually achieve something that played to that sense of purpose that meant I had an impact in a really meaningful way this week? And that's what I have to hold myself accountable to, because otherwise you do burn out. And I think we're all very good as leaders at spending our energy, but then not very good about, well, what does the energy transfusion look like? How do we put energy back in the tank? And so I do know that like certain hours of the day, I am all about Kinzen. I am in there doing my ruthless prioritization and keeping everyone in their flow and running the company. But I do the learning and I do the curiosity and I do the broadcasting and I mentor women and I'm out and about doing these other things because they actually put energy back in. I saw once you said about doing a Myers-Briggs personality (laughs) test. What is that and what did it tell you? Oh God, I'm always doing these various different tests so I can tell you all about my conflict style is one where, you know, I'm very, very democratic, but I realize that, you know, your your leadership styles are more like a bag of golf clubs. I'm obsessed with golf. I've never played it, but I love everything about the psychology of golf and you, how you think about your golf clubs and there's this guy Daniel Goldman who wrote this very very simple chapter once by thinking about leadership like your golf club so some moments you have to pull out the golf club that is visionary you have to go into the room and you have to paint pe- people a vision of the future and say lob the ball that's where we're headed and I'm going to show you how we get there and there's going to be days where it feels really dark and gray and the fog is going to come in but just trust that where the ball is where that flag is I'm going to get you there so you have to be visionary There are moments where you have to come in and be commanding. You know, two years ago, I told everybody, pack up your stuff, get in a taxi, go home. We'll not be here, uh, back here in this office till September. And they all thought, she's finally lost it. We'll be back in two weeks. And I was like, no, this is definitely going to be at least a six month thing. Where you have to be commanding in those moments where people just need order in the chaos. You're giving them a sense of control and you have to kind of dictate a little bit. And then there's other moments where it has to be coaching, where you're saying to people, um... I'm going to answer your questions with questions. And then there are moments where you have to be a mentor. The golf club is, okay, I'm going to give them answer. I'm going to help them tease this out. I'm going to answer their questions. So all of these moments, you're trying to find the right golf club in the right moment. But on top of that, yeah, you're Myers-Briggs. So 
You have 16 different personality types. And ultimately, it boils down to you've got your busy beavers and people will recognize this on your teams because you want the perfect blend. You definitely need busy beavers, people who love getting stuff done. You know, they love their lists. They love ticking things off. They really get their sense of fulfillment and impact from going A to Z execution. Then you got your owls and your owls are the people you'd never go into their office or onto a Zoom to convince them with an emotional argument. You would go with data, numbers, science, the math of it all. You know, we need to make this investment because it's going to add this to our P&L, right? So you kind of convince them, you persuade them through the science. And then you've got the dolphins, and I'm a dolphin, so we're the harmonizers, clarifiers, where you're trying to kind of constantly help people endure the lows, optimize the highs, find their way through, constantly getting them to play to their strengths, their values, have their sense of impact, and everything feels very personalized to them and their pods. So you're a dolphin moving them all up their pods. And then you have eagles. And eagles, you definitely want one or two of them on, on your team, but the eagles are the ones then who swoop in with what I call the batshit crazy ideas. And one in 10 are going to be the thing that's like, holy shit, that's amazing. That's where we need to be in 10 years time. And you try to work back from there. So when you do have that one in 10 idea, you then need your busy beavers, your dolphins <laughs> and your owls in the room trying to go, that sounds amazing. Now start at the end and work backwards. How do we make that happen? But you have to be careful with eagles because they swoop back out and they leave everybody else to figure it out. And sometimes nine out of the 10 ideas either needs to go in a queue or in the trash can or just let's pretend that never happened. <laughs> Anya, how do you remember so much? Um, do you have an well, enormous... I've done a test for that too. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that I learn by writing. And you, like I'm sitting here now, I haven't written anything since we started talking, but I would often draw pictures, I'll write words. So I normally learn by writing. Other people obviously learn through sound, you know, listening to something. Other people will learn through through the visual. Um, you know, I know people who learn through the spoken word. I know some people who learn, who embrace going into the whiteboard, into a room with just a whiteboard and going, let's solve this today. And they learn through being really comfortable with that high level of ambiguity, high level of creativity, high level of unknowns. But I equally know people who are terrified by that. And so in our team, I know some of our people learn bias by Give me an agenda 24 hours in advance. Tell me exactly what the problem is we're going to try to solve. Give me some pre-homework. Give me some pre-weeds. And I'll come in and I'll make my piece with that white uh, blank uh, whiteboard. But they'll have done the pre-learning. And, and it's knowing that. It's knowing people's different styles, your introverts and extroverts, how people get their energy differently. And sometimes having the courage to start meetings and rather than going, we're here today to solve X, instead you say, everybody take five minutes alone together. And you will see in those moments, some people will doodle, some people might put in music and they'll, they'll sit in quiet reflection, or the people will start writing paragraphs of content. And so everybody in those moments, everybody is going to come with good ideas, but you have to get them there a little bit differently. Tell us about Monaghan Woman in New York working for Facebook. What was that like? And tell us about the role that you had there. Uh, yeah, they, they, I don't think they ever quite learned how to pronounce my name. So I went by Amy for the best part of two years. And my role originally was to be Global Head of Journalism Partnerships, so as to think about products, tools and services that would help the world's publishers. So everything from how could Facebook build tools that would help journalists find content on Facebook and turn it into stories? How could they use a platform like Facebook to find sources, eyewitnesses uh, who could, could help tell stories? But then how do you use a platform of 4 billion people to amplify your journalism, to make sure that you are connecting quality news and journalism with the right people who might hit a button, subscribe, or consume an advert that was going to enhance the, the product. Okay, excuse my cynicism on this, <laughs> right? Uh, as somebody who does not subscribe to Facebook, who's mm. deleted my account, uh, I would be very distrustful of Facebook's motivations. Um, coming back to what we mentioned Francis Hogan earlier, and various other books that have been written about the way Facebook operates, convince me that it was sincere. You may have been sincere 
in what you wanted to do. But was your vision genuinely shared by those above you in Facebook? Yeah, my, well, certainly my vision was sincere. I always felt I was, uh, it was like Trojan horse effect, though, get in. I always knew I'd probably do a very short period of time that if you're going to go in in kind of a little bit like wartime mode, like I knew leaving Storyful for Facebook, this was a huge leap into a platform. And this is obviously pre-Cambridge Analytica, pre-2016 elections. I really felt I can go in here and do some good and persuade uh, the critical importance of journalism. The end of the day, while I feel I got to set up the Facebook Journalism Project, the News Integrity Initiative, and since then you have subscription models, you have revenue share deals in place. I do think Facebook has increasingly realized the moment and is doing more to support journalism. News content makes up a very small percentage of the content that is actually shared and viewed every day. And that probably sometimes made the argument for greater resources and greater funding tricky. You know, when you're up against um, just millions of pieces of content being uploaded every minute of every day. But I will say executives were largely open to realising ways that you could support journalism. But I could always see that there, there was a conflict there of, well, is the model that is sustaining journalism, is that broken? You know, what what is Facebook's role here? Because you have some people in our industry would argue, well, it was Craigslist. You know, they, they, the death of classified newspapers failed to see that coming and had they changed their models fast enough in terms of advertising, they could have uh, held off the Googles and the Facebooks and the YouTubes and Twitters of the world. And then you have others will say, well, no, it's still unfair that 80 odd percent of new advertising online goes to the bigger, ha- big ha- players of Amazon, Google, Twitter. And I'm sympathetic to both sides of, of the debate. And I ultimately over the years have always felt inside and outside Facebook that you have to play a part empowering these newsrooms now to become digital first. So how do you provide the training, the tooling, um, the systems that they can use a platform with 4 billion people to their advantage? Because I do think when done well, there is a way to build an audience through Facebook, but off Facebook. You, you find your Facebook audience, but you still bring them back to your website and you say, right, you're going to get 10 articles for free here and then we're going to hit you with a subscription. So I still do believe that there's great power in Facebook. Um, and I think there was a lot of good work being done. November 2016 happened for me and obviously and rightly the priority became false news. You know, overnight really, while that had been part of my job, Overnight, it became, well, now you've got a lot of false news on this platform competing for the same eyeballs that quality news and journalism is. And how are we going to rectify for false news? And rightly, that has become a huge priority for Facebook since 2016. And I think it's going to take us a long time to see, are they getting the balance now right of amplifying the good, quality, trustworthy, relevant, meaningful journalism and mitigating the bad? Some of the recent pronouncements by Mark Zuckerberg when the renaming of the company as Meta suggests it's almost sort of a cult-like organisation. It's the sort of the god of Mark Zuckerberg. Did you get that impression working with him? I really didn't. I have to say, I while it was there were definitely tough days inside Facebook, like any company, and you have to dig hard where you're in reactive mode and you're still trying to get back out into proactive mode. You can see all the elections coming. You can see where there is trouble ahead and you're trying to get to that. Um, and I, I think that therein is the two modes. I think if Facebook and a Kinzen is always going to struggle with the, how do you stay in the moment where you're dealing with the information crises of the day, Ukraine being the information crises of the moment, and that you protect a team that can be live and reactive and responsive and just act and do and be obsessed with this moment. And they're reactive and they're in this project mode versus then this other mode, which is futuristic. You're on the medium to long-term problems. You're thinking about the state of the world in 10 years' time and you're being allowed to solve for that. And that's something we in Kinzen are trying to get right now, but I think it's probably something that the Facebooks of the world have really struggled with when it just feels like you have multiple elections and multiple events playing out at any one time. And 
the power of Facebook, I will say, was to build what they call these cross-functional teams. You would really only ever have six people in a room at the most high-level meetings where you would have, you know, maybe one person from engineering, one person from data, one from policy, one from research. You're just trying to get the right six people in a room to make the right decisions in the right moment, rather than getting bogged down bureaucracy and by hierarchical levels. And I do think they do that well, and it's something I've tried to bring into Kinzen. But inevitably, for the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jack Dorseys of the world, they have not done enough of the thinking about the unintended consequences. Okay, we're running way over. We could talk for hours here, but I'm conscious of your ruthless prioritization and that you have other meetings that you have to attend. So just a couple of things to finish up with. You could have stayed with Facebook. You possibly even could have come back and worked from Ireland where they're significant and you would have had a very secure salary and could potentially have become quite wealthy, I'd imagine, working in Facebook. So why give it up? Yeah, I found myself at another moment uh, sitting on the bench outside Columbia University and um, having this moment with a coach at the time, Karen, and realising the thread line has always been, I have to get up in the morning and do things that feel purpose-driven. And I have to do that if I can connect to that sense of mission and vision, have a, have a sense of ownership of it, that I know the levers I can pull, the dials I can turn to make that impact, have that sense of purpose. And for all of the learnings I had in Facebook, and there were a lot, and I'm hugely grateful for that experience, you do feel 30,000 people removed from the mission and vision of Mark Zuckerberg. Like That is not my mission and vision. It's very much his. I'm proud to play my part every day in trying to execute on it. And I had that moment of realizing I could stay in Facebook and continue to do good for the world of journalism, but the mission will never be mine and its values. Or... I can go back to Dublin and forego maternity leave. And I knew I was secretly pregnant at the time. I can forego maternity leave, baby bonuses, shares, all of that good stuff with Facebook and start again and do something in this moment of an information crisis. So we're talking here 2017, we're out the back of the US elections and realising there is work unfinished with Storyful. There is work that potentially what was then Neva Labs could do to help a Facebook. And Mark and I had been having that conversation again for six months. Sorry, this of, is Mark Little, not Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, is there something not that we can do, but we should do? You know, because it's very easy to go off and go, that's a great idea. We'll build a startup around that. But is there something here that we should do? What does it look like to start again? And Mark had gone, Mark Little had gone to Twitter. I'd gone to Facebook. We had this new platform learning. And we risked a lot, you know, to come back what is nearly four and a half years ago now to start again another scrappy startup. And we give ourselves that little bit of cover. We called it Neva Labs at the time to have this moment of research and development and see could we find our way through the noise again to do something that is purposeful and build a purposeful team around it. Do you ever do it for the money? No. I don't think we have gone Because you've never mentioned money, I think, over the last hour or so. And it does strike me that a lot of people who set up businesses, they do it for all sorts of reasons. But for many people, it is to get a payday at the end of the day that there will be a financial reward for them to enjoy. And I think that's okay. I I realised a long time ago, people have different motivations. I often go back and I look at this Maslow hierarchy of needs all the time because I realise that there are some people on my team they come to work every day because they need safety and flexibility. They want to know there is a pay slip at the last Thursday of every month. They can bring their family on a holiday. They can pay their rent. They can pay their mortgage. And that's enough. And that's great. If I can keep them at that level and that's all they need. I know there is some other people on our team that are more about the sense of belonging to something um, that or that they want to have mastery. Like there are some people on our team they are geniuses when they, it comes out to machine learning and building models, language models that even platforms haven't been able to build. And the mastery and specialism is what drives them every day. And then there's people at the tip of that Maslow hierarchy of needs, which is more about self-actualization and doing things that is actually going to make your society, your communities, your family and friends, it's going to enrich them and make the communities in which they live 
better. And it's not to say that I've always, I've certainly gone up and down. We all have moments of just, how am I going to pay the mortgage this month? But I've always tried to kind of, well, can I place smart bets to make sure I'm not worrying about the bottom of that triangle and give myself enough flexibility that I can answer the question any day of the week, which I do have to step back sometimes and go, what is the worst that can happen here? And I've had to do that from four and a half years into a second startup and realize, yeah, how many months could I go without paying myself? What would the mortgage look like? And every time I've done that, I've been comfortable with, okay, it's a risk, but it's a bet. I'm betting on not only Kinzen and Mark, but I'm betting on me. And I've been comfortable with that because I can ultimately feel the sense of impact I can have if I continue to push through with this in terms of the resilience it requires. So I know enough about me that for some people it is about flexibility. For some people it's about belonging to something. For some people it's about mastery, specialism of something. For me it's about impact. Everything comes back to purpose. What? Why me? Why this? Why now? And if not me, then who? And if not this, then what? And if not now, well then when? And every time I come back and I still go, yep, I'm doing things that help people better understand the world around them, which goes back to teaching, journalism, and now business. And within that, am I putting together a team of purpose-driven people, but am I doing things out in the world to ultimately empower women and ensuring that my daughter comes into a world where women are treated more equally? I'd like to think I'm playing my part day to day. So it's purpose. Everything comes back to purpose. I'm going to leave it at that. Anya <laughs> Kerr, thank you so much. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.